Welcome to Revival from the Bible, a daily devotional podcast where we dig into God's Word together and find life through Jesus Christ. My name is Ben Blakey. It's Thursday, the 27th of August, 2020. What makes you happy? I mean, if I said, hey, here's something that you can do today that will put a smile on your face, just make your life and your body feel at peace, and you'll be able to look around and say, ah, this is good. I don't know, maybe a quiet afternoon in your favorite fishing spot or a house that for once is quiet and all the kids are doing what they're supposed to do or a nice candlelight dinner with that special someone? What what, what would be something that would make you happy, put a smile on your face and just joy and peace in your heart if you could do that today? Well, today I want to ask the question, what makes God happy? What is something that when it happens, God is rejoicing and, and he loves what is going on? Well, we're going to see an answer to that question today in Luke chapter 15. And we're going to look at Luke 15, 1 through 10 today. And what Luke 15 is, is three stories. Very familiar ones, I trust, culminating with what we'll get to tomorrow, the story of the prodigal son. But all all the stories have a very similar, even kind of the same point. And it all is set up by this interaction in verse 1 and 2 where it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So it's in response to that, that Jesus makes these three parables. And one thing I think we should notice is when Jesus is criticized for hanging out with sinners, It's never because he's hanging out with sinners and just going along with their sin. No, he was the perfect lamb of God. What he was doing was he was hanging out with sinners and calling them to repentance. And many times I think when he's criticized by the Pharisees and the scribes for hanging out with sinners, they're actually criticizing these people's past more than their present That these people have repented, they're following Christ now, but the Pharisees still want to define them by the sins of their past instead of the grace of Christ in the present. And so Jesus then tells these stories. And the first is the story of the lost sheep, where the shepherd, he counts 99, but there is one missing. And so he leaves the 99 and he goes and he finds the one. And it says in verse five, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And then when he gets home, he gets all his friends together for a party and says, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. And then look at verse seven, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And even that statement, should you should understand that as a little bit tongue-in-cheek, that Jesus is kind of targeting the Pharisees here. They, they don't think that they need repentance. But if you've read all of the Gospel of Luke and all of the Gospels, you see Jesus very clearly pointing out to the Pharisees that they need to repent. So I think that line, there's a little bit of tongue in cheek there that he's not actually saying, hey, there's righteous people that don't need repentance. He's calling out the Pharisees and he's saying what makes God happy 
is when a sinner repents, when the lost is found. And then the next story is the story of the lost coin, where a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one and she makes a diligent search and she finds it. And then she calls her friends to rejoice with her. And again, in verse 10, it says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. When somebody turns from their sin and puts their faith in Christ, there is a party going on in heaven. And this is consistent with God's character. And we're going to see that as we look again at Psalm 103, a very encouraging psalm. But we'll again see how integral forgiveness is to the character and the nature of God. In our section today, we're reading verses 6 through 14. In verse 8, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. It's talking about a God who loves forgiveness. I'll never forget even something I heard as a little kid, somebody talking about as far as the east is from the west. And even just think about the earth. If you start heading east, you'll keep going east. And you'll keep going around, around the globe. You'll, you'll never go so far to the east that you turn back around to the west. No, you'll just keep on going as far as the east is from the west. I mean, uh, David's thinking of as, as far as he can think. He's trying to stretch his own imagination to think about how far could things possibly remove, be removed from each other. And that's how far God has removed our sins from us. We serve a God who is forgiving and not just a God who, you know, forgives when he has to, a God who loves to forgive sin. And I love how it compares at the end of our section today, God to a father, as it says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Uh, verses have obviously taken on more meaning to me since I became a father and, and can relate to that compassion you have for your kids, which if it's right, it never just excuses your children for misbehavior and acts like it isn't a big deal, but you love your kids. You want to see your kids grow through this. When your kids are repentant, you are eager to forgive them. And you even understand, especially when they're young, that they are kids, they are growing, they're learning. And you have a heart that loves them and wants to see them grow and wants to forgive them as they grow and as they understand and and they learn more about what is right and best versus what is wrong. That's how God feels about us. God loves forgiveness. So, What difference should that make? A couple things that I would like us to think about in our own lives is one, let's praise the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name because God has forgiven our 
sin. Let's praise God that he has forgiven our sin, that he has removed it from us as far as the east is from the west. And even now he is patient with us. He is kind toward us. His disposition towards us, if we are his people, is one of steadfast love and mercy. What a great thing. Take some time to praise God for that today. The other thing I'd like us to think about is let's have the same heart as God. Let us seek and pray and rejoice when we see opportunities for sinners to repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ. That is something if God loves it, we should love it. And we shouldn't be self-righteous like the Pharisees. We should be people that are eager to see people turn from their sin and put their faith in Christ. And when people do that, we don't want to define them by their past. We want to see them now as God sees them as forgiven and loved and precious in his sight. This is all so important for us to understand. Let's rejoice in our own forgiveness and let's pray that we would see others repent. And obviously let's be clear, that is a condition to this rejoicing, that it's when a sinner repents and turns from their sin, that there is this rejoicing in heaven. And that's what we want to see, right? We we don't want to just rejoice over sinners who are living in their sin, but when sinners turn from that sin, man, that is something that should get us excited like it gets God excited. Now I want us to turn to a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read that chapter today. And one thing we see here is how the church should be run. Even at the end, it talks about the importance of the church. And uh, Paul even tells Timothy, I'm writing these things to you so that you can know how to act in the church, which is the household of God. I mean, isn't that important? Shouldn't we want to understand how we should act in God's church? And so he gives conditions for, for leadership. And first, it talks about overseers. Now, that's a term that we we see a few different terms used in the New Testament talking about this office of overseer. And I would argue that they're used interchangeably. And we don't really use the term overseer much in our culture today. The words that we do use that would fit this biblical description would be terms like pastor or elder, which... I would argue are two terms that we should use interchangeably. Pastors and elders shouldn't be referring to two different kinds of people. It's two different words to describe the same office. And that's really the layout we see here in 1 Timothy 3 is that in scripture, there are two primary kind of offices of leadership in the church. And the first is of the overseer, which we would refer to in our culture most commonly with the terms pastor or elder. And then we're going to see starting in verse eight, the office of a deacon. And so first you see the qualifications for overseers or pastors, elders. And again, notice most of them are focused on character. And that's something I hope you can find a church where you see the pastors or elders of of that church. And some different churches will set that up and how that exactly is run different ways. But can you look at Those men that are leading the church and say, yes, I think these are men of character as described by this passage. And next you see deacons. And deacons, I think, are a little bit trickier of a word in the New Testament because it really is the, the word that means to serve 
or, or to minister. And sometimes even you'll see this word not translated deacon, which is really just taking the Greek letters and putting it into of diakonos and putting it into English. But sometimes it won't be translated deacon. It'll be translated servant or to serve. And so I think sometimes it's hard to draw the line of who are kind of the capital D deacons and official and, you know, who are the servants in the church? Because we are all called to serve in the church. But again, for these people that hold this office of deacon in the church, there's character requirements. And that's what God sees. And that's one lesson we should learn from this passage is the importance of character. And if you are a Christian, it may be you don't aspire to be a pastor. There's nothing wrong with with that. Uh, Maybe though you do want to serve the church and I think we should all want to serve the church and I think we should all aspire to godly character. So even if you aren't necessarily serving a church in a role as a pastor or elder or as a deacon, I think we can look at these character qualities and see, man, this is what God really wants and I want to see these in my own life. And really, that's going to connect with something we see in the book of Job today. It, you know, even the first uh, characteristic that God wants to see in a pastor or an elder is that they are above reproach. There is no known obvious sin in their life that will bring reproach on the name of Christ. And in Job chapter 31, Job again kind of makes this appeal that I, I'm above reproach. He talks about purity even with his eyes. He talks about how he has not lied, how he has not committed adultery, how he's um, not been a bad employer or unjust towards people in any ways. He hasn't put his trust in riches. He hasn't been unkind to other people by rejoicing when bad things happen to other people. He defends his integrity. And, And Again, that might not be the entire point of the book of Job, but I think that is one lesson that we can pull, that Job was committed to doing the right thing when life was going well. And even now when it wasn't, he was saying, no, I am still going to hold fast to my integrity. I'm not going to give in to temptation to to lust or to lie or anything like that. I'm going to keep my focus where it needs to be, and I'm going to keep my commitment to honor God through integrity. And that's really the last we'll hear in extended remarks from Job there in chapter 31. And we'll talk about this more tomorrow. But then in chapter 32, Elihu starts speaking. And so Job had his three friends who have been going back and forth with him. But now a fourth one who's clearly younger speaks up. And there's a lot of different understandings of what Elihu says. And some people take it to be very negative, that this is more just bad advice. Some people have a more positive opinion. It's hard to say for sure because God, when he shows up, doesn't speak directly to what Elihu says. I don't think what he says is perfect, but I tend to lead towards having a more positive view of what he is saying. I think he is saying different things than Job's friends were saying. Even there at the beginning, I think one of the things is he is young and and brash and even it says that he's, you know, fired up with anger. And I don't think that's the best thing, but he's anger. He's angry at Job because he justified himself rather than God. So Job was justifying himself, defending his integrity. And hey, great that Job had integrity. Great that he defended it. But Elihu's upset that he was defending himself rather than 
defending God. Because even Job, he defends himself, but at some points, it seems as though Job is accusing God, saying, God, why are you doing this? Why are you not listening to me? And even making stronger statements than that, which I think that is what Job ends up repenting for at the end of the book. So I don't think what Elihu says is all bad, and we'll get into it tomorrow. I think there's some things where he is young and brash, but I think he is pointing out that Job is trying to take God to task to some extent, and that's not the way that Job should have responded, and that's not the way when trials come that you or I should respond, and I think that will be made most clear when God shows up and speaks to Job. But let's take a lesson both from 1 Timothy and from Job today that being above reproach, having integrity is a good thing that should be cherished, and I hope it's something that all of us pursue. And I hope it's something that we all pursue knowing that it is not our pursuit of integrity, our pursuit of uprightness that earns us any favor with God or earns our salvation in any way. That is all dependent on a good and forgiving God who loves to forgive. So let's praise his name today. Thanks for digging into God's word with me today on Revival from the Bible. For more resources, check out revivalfromthebible.com. To learn more about Compass Bible Church Treasure Valley, go to compassbible.tv. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.